The book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 39 through 40. As you probably will recall, Joseph and Mary are in the temple dedicating their children to the, their, their child to the Lord, Jesus to the Lord, uh, the Father. And then Simeon comes up and Anna comes up, and, and they've been talking now for six, seven, eight weeks. And now we're going to move on. And here's what the passage says. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Luke, uh, unlike Matthew, doesn't talk about the detour into Egypt. Uh, he has them just go right back to, to Nazareth. And the child, referring to Jesus, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. And in the Greek, it's a participle which could be, and is better translated, was being filled with wisdom as he was growing up. That's why most translations have something like, he grew in his wisdom and strength. And both he grew, and the grace of God was on him. I just want us to notice there that Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in understanding. Jesus was a full human being who learned the way we learned. He increased in his wisdom. Through his study, through other means, he learned. Another verse that says it actually clearer is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, where the author says, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. The Greek word there, teleao, uh, means to be completed. It doesn't mean that Jesus improved morally because he had the character of God from the start. But he did grow. He was completed as a human being. And when he was completed, fulfilled as an adult, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Both of these passages drive home this profound point, that Jesus learned he was a full human being. He grew uh, physically and grew intellectually, he learned the way all human beings learn. He was a full human being, not part human being. He was completely human being. Now, the Bible's also really clear that he was God. He was fully God. Romans 9, 5 says he's God over all, blessed forever. John 1, 1, the word was with God and the word was God. John uh, 20, 28, Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. Titus 2, 13 says our great, he's, he is our great God and Savior. He's prayed to, he's worshipped, all the attributes of God are given to him in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is fully God. Dan Brown, the author of the Da Vinci Code, is off his rocker when he says that that came about in the 4th century. That's a bunch of nonsense. And I had to say that because the movie's coming out and most of you are going to go see it. And I don't want you to get, get confused. It's just silliness. Uh, the New Testament, written in the first century, depicts Jesus as fully God. But he was also fully human. Now, those, are, those two things are not easy to hold together. And so what you find in many circles is people going in one direction or the other. If you're in more liberal circles, the tendency is to affirm his full humanity, but to minimize, if not deny altogether, his divinity. Whereas Bible believers tend to affirm his divinity, but tend to, in some ways, inadvertently for sure, but tend to minimize his humanity. And that has theological consequences. That tendency has been there from the, from the very start. I was uh, this week uh, reading Origen, who's a second century theologian. This is kind of stuff I like to read. And so I'm reading Origen, a second century theologian, 
And uh, I wasn't reading him for the purpose of preparing for this message. I was just reading him. And as I was reading his work, he, he was talking about the humanity of Jesus. And he says that Jesus was fully human. But then he says this. But of course, we must not conceive of the Son of God, though he was fully human, having the ordinary base functions of the human body. I think what he means is that Jesus never well, had what we would call baser functions of the human body. Uh, never had bowel movements, for example. Uh, but, you know, okay, look it. If you're a human, you have bowel movements. And so if, if, if Jesus didn't have bowel movements, he wasn't fully human. If he was fully human, Jesus had bowel movements. I bet no one in their life has ever heard in a church that said before. <laughs> but there's a, a strong theological point. No, and probably some of you are thinking that maybe that was like, oh, isn't that just kind of uh, sacrilegious to think that Jesus had the baser human bodily functions? But it's not. Not if he was a full human being. This tendency goes on today. We're, we're kind of embarrassed by the humanity of Jesus. I, uh, a number of years ago, probably 15, 16 years ago, caused a little bit of a storm at Bethel. <laughs> one, of, one of a couple. Uh, uh, but... It, what happened was that movie came out, The Last Temptation of Christ. Remember that movie? And Christians were up in arms, and they were picketing the movie and all this kind of stuff, saying that it was blasphemous or whatever. Um, most of them, in fact, all the ones I knew who, who were up in arms about it hadn't seen the movie, but they were just sure that it was blasphemous because someone told them, and so they were picketing the thing. So I, I eventually watched this movie. Uh, and I thought the movie had a lot of theologically wrong points, and I thought the movie was profoundly boring. It was a bad movie. But the scandal of the movie occurred in this segment where Jesus is on the cross. This was the real scandal. And a little girl comes up to him who's representing Satan. Yeah, and Satan mass says this little innocent child. And the innocent child says to Jesus, who was really Satan saying to Jesus, why don't you come down? You don't have to do this. You have the power to live a normal life. You could get married. You could have children. You could live a normal life. Why, do you, why not use your power to come down off the cross? And then there is a, for a split second, Jesus thinks about that scenario, which in the movie takes about 20 minutes. And this is what people were so up in arms about. Uh, he, he imagines himself coming down off the cross. He imagines himself getting married to Mary Magdalene. He imagines himself making love to Mary Magdalene. He imagines himself having children and then kind of living happily ever after. And then he decides not to do it, and he lets himself uh, be crucified. Now, in this class, I simply said, is that really so blasphemous? Is that implausible to think that Jesus wasn't tempted to do that? And some of the students, honestly, I'm glad they didn't have wood with them because they would have started a fire right then, burned this heretic. It seems to me that if Jesus is fully human, in fact, the Bible says this, Hebrews 2, he, he had to be made, for the purposes of salvation, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. He was, whatever makes you a human, he, he had. He was a full human being. Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but rather we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, here's the thing. I don't know where the line is between being tempted towards something and then sinning in it. 
But there is a line. The reason why it's hard for us to know where that line is is because we've screwed it up so much throughout our life, it's all kind of ambiguous. But you've got to know that there's a difference between being tempted towards something, which implies a kind of a pull. You're thinking, I could do that. Uh, maybe a part of you says, boy, that would be nice to do that. But then you shut it down and you don't do that, either in your mind or, or, or in your behavior. Um, th there is that line between thinking about it and actually doing it. Jesus never crossed that line. Most of us have crossed it so often back and forth that we don't know where that line even is. But there is that line. Jesus was tempted. He thought, I could do that. Uh, but he never actually went in that direction. To suppose that Jesus, he was tempted in every way like we are. That means if you... If you've thought about not doing the Father's will because it'd be more convenient to do your own will, Jesus thought about that. He never gave in to that, but he did think about that. If you've thought about just kind of doing your own thing, going your own way, Jesus thought about that. He never actually did it. If you're tempted to lust after a person, Jesus had the thought. He could, he could lust after a person, but he never did it. But the temptation was there. And the point I want to make is that he was fully human, just like we are. Whatever is true about you was true about Jesus minus the sins. You have to sleep, Jesus had to sleep. You have bowel movements, Jesus had bowel movements, sorry. Uh, you, you are tempted, Jesus was tempted. He was a full human being. Now you ask the question, let's get theological. How is it possible for Jesus to be that thoroughly human and yet also to be fully God? How is that possible? How can he be both? And having studied an awful lot and read a lot of books, and I have a PhD in theology, so I've earned the right to give the definitive answer to this, and the definitive answer is, I don't know. <laughs> and neither do you. Thank you. You like it when I don't know stuff. Look at it. We can't get our brains around this one, but that shouldn't surprise us because if you are, are, are uh, walking awake and think about things, you'll discover that you can't get your brains around very much of anything. Uh, look, we live in a time-space world. Uh, well, think about it. Did time begin or did time not begin? Either way, you can't conceive of it. Does space end or does space never end? Either way, you can't conceive of it. And by the way, how are you conscious right now? How does three and a half pounds of matter between your ears become self-aware? Figure that one out. Uh, no one has yet. We can't get our brains around our own brains. How is light? How is light both a particle-like and wave-like? We don't know. We don't have a clue. But what we know is that all the evidence points in that direction. So if life itself at every turn is full of paradoxes, it shouldn't surprise us that the, the event which is the center of all of history has some paradoxical qualities to it. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Uh, we, we don't have, it's not a contradiction, but it is a paradox. Now, Paul gives us a little clue. He doesn't explain it, but he gives us a clue as to what else might, might have been going on that maybe sheds some light on this. Here's what Paul says in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. He talks about Jesus being in very nature God. He was by very nature God. He did not consider his equality or his identity with God something to be used to his own advantage. Note that, his equality with God. He was by very nature God. Listen to that, Dan, Dan Brown. He, he, was, he had equality with God, identity with God. Listen to that, Dan Brown. Uh, but he didn't use it to his advantage. As God, he lives in the supreme bliss of the triune God, but he didn't cash in on that for his own purposes. Rather, here's what he did. He made himself nothing 
The Greek word there means to empty. He emptied himself. He divested himself of the exercise of his divine uh, attributes and prerogatives in order to, be, to take on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He became a human being. And what I understand Paul to be saying here is this. Everything about his divinity that would be inconsistent without him, with him being a full human being, he set aside. He sets aside the exercise of his omniscience in order to become a finite human being. He sets aside the exercise of his omnipresence, which means God is everywhere, to become a human being, because human beings aren't everywhere. He sets aside the exercise of his omnipotence uh, to become a, a, a human being, because human beings aren't omnipotent. John Wesley, uh, the great uh, Methodist preacher and, and hymn writer, uh, expressed it really well in, in what is, I think, his greatest hymn. It's, it's called, And Can It Be? And here's what John Wesley says. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, embodied, uh, emptied himself of all but love, of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. I think, I think that just expresses it. He retains his divine, the God-defining love character, but he sets aside the exercise of all the other attributes in order to become a real human being. And my point here is this, and it's the point of the passages we're looking at here this morning. Jesus was 100% human. He was also 100% God. He was both, but he certainly was 100% human. He wasn't God pretending to be a human. He wasn't God dressed up in a human outfit. He wasn't, you know, just kind of uh, giving the appearance of being a human. God, out of his lavish, outrageous, incomprehensible love, set aside the glory, set aside the omnipotence, set aside the omniscience, set aside the bliss, and dove headfirst into our humanity. He took it all on himself. He entered into our frailty, entered into this war zone, entered into the mess that we've created for ourselves. He divests himself of everything that's inconsistent with that in order to become a genuine, full-fledged human being. That says something marvelous about the love of God. It says something marvelous about the character of God. If a human being was to, some, for some reason, fall desperately in love with ants and devise a way of putting off all of their human attributes in order to become 100% an ant, in order to redeem ants, work with me here, all right? <laughs> that would be nothing compared to what God did for us because the gulf between us and God is infinitely greater than the gulf between us and ants. Yet God, in his glory, in his bliss, in his joy, in his love, he empties it all, recklessly abandons himself, and dives into the muck of humanity that we have created. And he becomes a full, 100% human being. Now that's important because it tells us. It tells us his outrageous love. There's nothing more that God could do to express his love for us than what he already did. But it's important for a lot of other reasons. Uh, in, in terms of freeing us, reconciling us to the Father, freeing us from the devil, freeing us from sin, and things of that sort. I, I may go into that more next week. Right now, I want to focus on one other reason why this is so important. And it's found in a passage that we just read a little bit ago, Hebrews 4.15. Here's what it says. For we do not have a high priest, the one who does intercession for us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but rather we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. 
The point I want us to notice there is that this high priest, our high priest, he's not a distant deity up on his throne looking down at pathetic humanity with a thunderbolt in hand like the Thor god of the Nordic religion. Rather, this high priest has entered into every aspect of our life, and therefore we can know, the author says, that he empathizes. The word empathize comes from the word empathos, which is the prefix em, which means into or alongside of, and then pathos, which means emotion or suffering. So what the author is saying there is that God, out of his extravagant, generous, lavish love, dove into our humanity, and now we can know that he's entered into and experiences alongside of our emotion, our experience, our suffering. And the reason why that is so incredibly important is because the need to be known and to be understood is one of the deepest needs of human existence. Some would say it is the deepest need. To be fully known and to be accepted, not judged, but accepted as known, is, is perhaps the most profound need in human life. And this author is saying that God dives in and fills that need, fills that longing. The sad thing about life in this fallen war zone is that many of us, perhaps most of us, much of the time, perhaps most of the time, and for some all of the time, don't experience anything close to that. We feel alone, locked inside our skin. We feel like there's nobody who understands where we're at. Uh, I don't know how it was for you or how it is for you, but I, growing up, always felt like that. I always felt odd. Can you believe that? It's hard to believe. I always felt like an alien. Anyone else, you feel, you feel like an alien? I still feel like that most of the time, like I'm an alien, like, like I'm on an island, uh, and, and there's, there's no bridge to the mainland. And growing up, I always had that sense of, of being alone. Um, some of you who have been here for a time know what some of my issues are and weirdnesses are, and one of the weirdnesses I had from a very early age was I always thought a lot about death. I've been obsessed with death. I think about death all the time. Growing up, I thought it was the only important fact we're thinking about. We're going to die. This show comes to an end. I was always impressed with that. And the thing that most got me about death and intrigued me about death is that you're totally alone when you die. No one can take that journey with you. And it seems to me that that says a lot about life. It felt like life is a prelude to death, and therefore we're largely, if not totally, this is how it felt to me, alone in life. Uh, I, I used to, as a kid, ask weird questions of other kids. I remember in fifth, it was either fifth or sixth grade, I got into a discussion where I tried to share with some of my friends the fact that my red might not be your red. It occurred to me that when I look at red, or you know, pretend this is red, when I look at red, how do I know that I'm seeing what you're seeing? Now, we all call it the same word, but that's because you've always identified that color with the word red. But for all I know, what I'm, my red is your green. It's just that we've been conditioned to talk differently about it. You see what I'm saying? So I'm talking, I'm telling you, I got this new revelation. Our colors, we're locked in our colors. We're locked on our inside. And no one understands what I'm saying. They want to lock me up. But I was just impressed with this aloneness. We're locked in our subjectivity. As a teenager, one of my most, uh, uh, the song that I think I love the best, I, I, it just meant so much to me. Somebody, everyone who's over 40 will know this song. Uh, it was the song by The Who, uh, Behind Blue Eyes. I used to listen to that and listen to that. All the, no one knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man. 
behind blue eyes. No one knows what it's like to be hated, to be fated, to telling only lies. But my dreams, they aren't as empty as my conscience seems to be. And it goes on from there, you know. It's, don't encourage me. Don't do it. Don't do it. I might continue. It's a, the song just gets you. I was like, whoa, that's where I'm at. You know, no, I, I feel like there's no one in the box with me. Uh, you know, you got these blue eyes that look so pretty, although mine are hazel. And, but but uh, no one knows what it's like to be on the inside of this. You see, and we go through life largely feeling like that. You know what I'm talking about. This actually played into what became a turning point in my life. Um, when I was a junior in high school, I, I, I never read a book. I hated books. I hated school. I was checked out. I was into drug, sex, and rock and roll. That was my life. But something changed my life. I, I took, uh, I had to take Miss King's humanities class. Uh, and in this class, in fact, uh, it, it was a, this is one of those little miracle stories. Miss King, you'll find out here shortly, changed my life completely. Uh, I lost contact with her, but someone in the congregation happened to be her nurse. She was dying. She passed away two weeks ago. And this nurse was able to tell me, somehow found out that we have each other in common, and said, you know, she, uh, she's uh, at this place. You can get a hold of her. And I was able to visit her before she died and tell her what she meant to me. Isn't that a God thing? It's a God thing. Amen. But here's what happened in this class. Uh, we, we were watching uh, a film of the play Our Town, Oscar Wilder's Our Town. Have you ever seen that? Still to this day, my favorite play ever and because of this experience. And I was checked out like I'm normally checked out as, we're, as the class is talking about the implications of this play. But at some point, Miss King mentions that the narrator said, we go through life two by two. And uh, that caught my attention. And I blurted out, that is a crock of... <laughs> and she says, oh, Mr. Boyd, you're going to talk in this class. Please clean up your language a little bit, but we'd like to hear what you have to say. And so I just shared, I, I, I was basically saying this. We don't go through life two by two. That's a facade. We're born alone. We die alone. We go through life alone. And the sooner we learn how to deal with that fact, the better. Now, I'm not quite as much of a nihilistic, existential individualist as I was back then. But my, my point stands. I, we, we go through life alone. And then what happened was, gee, you know, we had a nice debate about that in the class. I think it was the first time I ever participated in a class discussion. Uh, and we had this big debate uh, in this class. And after the class, uh, she took me aside, and we talked some more about the, the, the issue. And then she says, Greg, you know, I, you know what I think? I think you're a philosopher. I said, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> and she says, oh, it's, it's a good thing. Um, I, this was, I think, the first affirmative word I'd ever gotten from an authority in high school. Like, there's something I got to offer? Like, you don't think I'm a drug burnout? You don't think... You know, she goes, no, no, here's the deal. I will, I will take away, you don't have to do any more assignments in this class, since I wasn't doing them anyways. Um, <laughs> and I want you to go, uh, you'll get an A if you'll do this. Go to the library, which you've never been to, and look up in a card catalog, find out what that is, and, and look up under philosophy and just start reading. I went to the library and I looked up under philosophy and I found this, I just randomly picked a book. It was Eric Hoffer's True Believer. Anyone ever read that book? And I read this book, and it's like, dude, this, this guy knows where I'm at. You know, there, there's someone else who's a total idiot who thinks about these weird thoughts and, and asks these crazy, like, questions. And my brain just came alive. I mean, it just completely changed my life. I found something worth thinking about. 
uh, something worth reading. And I just started pouring my, I became an absolute book addict, and it totally changed my life. And I'm just thankful to God that I got a chance to tell Miss King what she meant to me before, before she passed on. And it shows the, the, the impact that one word, one caring affirmative word on the part of a teacher can make in the life of a student. And it just really blows you away. But my point here is this. To a large degree, that experience is something we all go through, the feeling of being alone. It feels like we're isolated, at times at least. It's hard for another person to really enter into your skin, to know, you know what you're going through. I don't know what it is to do life like you, and you don't totally know what it is to do life like me. And the further apart our experiences are, the harder it is to empathize, to enter into and experience alongside of the emotions, the experiences of another person. The, the, the more different our experiences are, the harder that is. Uh, the staff, a couple weeks ago, watched a training uh, film uh, with Brenda Salter McNeil, who we've consulted with to go forward on reconciliation. And we're watching this film, and one part of this film was so intriguing. Uh, it, it wasn't the main point the person was trying to make, but it really hit me. This, this African-American man was talking about how when, when he's pulled over by the police, he puts his hands out of the window in order to communicate, now he does it just in instinctively, but to communicate that he's unarmed. Because he's had some experiences, and people he knows have had experiences of what might happen if you don't do that. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, as a white man, I don't have anything in my experience to connect with that. I, I don't understand that. When I get pulled over, once in a while it happens, <laughs> I am worried about getting a ticket, but I, there's no bone in my body that worries about anything else possibly happening. But you talk to people of color, and some will tell you that, in fact, there's another fear factor that, that, that can be there. I remember listening to a radio show uh, about a year ago or so, and, and they were talking about profiling and, and uh, things of that sort. And they had some non-white people call in and talk about their experiences. And then this white man called in. He was a, a pastor. He identified himself as a pastor. And he just dismissed the whole thing. Come on, none of us like to get pulled over, but you know, don't play the race card. And I, I started, my heart starts beating fast because I'm thinking to myself, how would you possibly know? Uh, how, how can you put yourself in an authority to speak on this? Because it's not part of your experience doesn't mean it's not part of their experience. And the only way you'll ever begin to, begin to enter into their experiences is by, leaving, by, by believing them and taking that seriously. And no one was suggesting that, that most policemen are, are like this or that anyone does it intentionally. On the whole, people go out of their way not just to, to, to profile, but all the, the, all the data suggests that, in fact, I mean, if you're a person of color, you're like three times more likely to be pulled over than if you're not. Something else is going on. But as a white person, I don't have to bump into that wall, so it's not part of my experience. The more different someone's experience is from you, the more you have to, it takes intentionality to enter into it. And it's true for any issue in life. This last week, I was uh, at Target, and there's this lady who's shopping at Target on University Avenue, and her kid is just acting like a total pill. Uh, just, I mean, screaming and throwing a tantrum and shouting and oh, whatever. And the mother didn't seem to be that bothered by it. It was just kind of shopping while the kid's like, ah, God, God, you did this to me. And I walked by the aisle, and I kind of stopped because it was really quite a racket. And I uh, just kind of smiled. Another lady turned the corner on the other side of the aisle, and there was immediately this look of judgment. Like, what kind of a parent are you? Have you ever gotten those looks from people? <laughs> I, um, 
you know, gee, I, you know, if you just spanked that kid, if you just did this, sometimes I'll actually give you advice. You know, if you just did this right, if you just did that, the other, read this book, well, then you wouldn't have this problem. But here's the thing. If you, if you have just been blessed to be given by God a, one of these wonderful angelic children who smile from birth and are so pleasant, then you have no idea what it's like to uh, raise a child who has uh, a behavioral disorder, a pervasive uh, behavioral disorder. Uh, maybe they have some sort of psychological disorder, autism of some sort within that kind of a spectrum. Uh, you have no idea what it's like to raise a child like that. Only someone who has experienced that could look at that woman and not judge, but rather, if you raise a child like that, what you know is, for all you know, this woman's having a really good day. <laughs> this might be, this kid's better than normal. But see, if you think all kids are like your little angelic sweetheart child, uh, you know, then you'll just stand in judgment. This is why the Bible's wisdom is so important. Do not judge. Uh, where none of us are in a position to know what only God knows. No one can judge another. They may invite you in to help them live out the Christian life. But otherwise, our one job, our one kingdom mandate is to look at all people and know that they are with Jesus dying for and to bless them and not to judge them because you don't know what it's like to be them, to, to, to live life in their shoes. You don't know what else is going on. From the inside, what this means is this. Unless someone's taking work to get on our inside, we feel alone. And yet the deepest longing of the human heart is to be known, to feel like, like someone's there on the inside with us. Someone, someone understands, enters into, and experiences alongside of us our experience. This is why uh, small groups are so important. We, we, we just hammer that all the time, to be in Christian community. And for those communities to get to the point where you, it's safe enough, the judgment mechanisms have been collapsed enough, so that we invite other people in on our world to know that someone's there. It feels so good when you feel like somebody understands what you're going through, doesn't it? It's like Lego pieces fitting together. You've got it. You, you know what I'm going through right now. First time I ever experienced that, well, that I remember was in fifth grade. Uh, I had I, uh, gotten my third straight D in conduct on the report card. I was one of those pervasive disorder kids, okay? Uh, and, and so I was always acting out. I got a D in conduct for the third straight uh, quarter. My father had told me the previous quarter, Greg, look, listen to this. I don't care if you flunk every subject. At least try, and you'll prove that you're trying by getting at least a C in conduct. So I really tried, I thought. But I get a D in conduct, and I'm just, I'm thinking, I am so dead. Now, there's another kid in the classroom who saw me. And he comes up and he says, are you dead? <laughs> and I said, I am so completely dead. And he said to me, so am I. In fact, see, this was, uh, his name was Roger Swazinski. Uh, his parents actually go to the church here. They're in the last service. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so he, this was his third straight D or something close to that. I think he got a D plus, if I remember right. But he says, I, we're, we're going to get killed. We're going to get killed. And then we start sharing stories. What's going to happen to you? And then, he's, and then I'm like saying, look, well, here's what's going to happen to me. Oh, that's nothing. This is what's going to happen to me. And our parents are turning more and more into monsters as we're talking. But there's kind of a comfort in that. And we walk home very, very slowly. Oh, man, we're just talking about, you know, what's going to happen to us when we get home. And when we got home and got killed, there was a sense of, 
of uh, satisfaction over knowing that we weren't the only ones getting killed. Somebody else is getting killed with us. Misery loves company. Someone's on the inside. Someone knows what you're going through. Praise God for that. It is such a basic human need to, to know that you're not alone. You're not on an island. You're not an alien. Somebody gets it along with you. This is why a refuge ministry is such an important ministry. Where people, even if there's no, like, fix-it things, you can't, you know, no, no solutions to the problems, just knowing that there's somebody else who gets it, that is healing. It is empowering. Uh, it, 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 helps, it helps the situation just knowing that you're not totally alone. You're in, this, you're in the support group, and somebody here understands what it's like to be a person who's blown your wonderful family apart by having an affair. Somebody else gets the pain of that. You know, somebody else knows what it's like to be betrayed by a husband uh, who's addicted to pornography, and there's a bond that is there. Someone else here knows what it's like to have a gambling addiction or a drug addiction. Someone else here knows what it's like to have been abused, and so on and so on. Just having someone in the... A transforming thing. That's why the kingdom is all about honest, raw, non-pretentious community. Now, here's the thing. It may be, I hope you have people like that in your life who understand you are on the inside. But what this passage is telling us is even if you don't, God knows you. The passage is telling us that God, out of his outlandish, uh, incredible, incomprehensible love, dove straight into our humanity, took on every aspect of our humanity with all of its messed upness. He knows what it's like, totally knows what it's like to be a human being. He's on the inside of your fallen humanness. And on the cross of Calvary, it even goes further, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus there experiences, the Bible tells us, the sin of the world. He absorbs within himself, as it were, the sin of the world, the terror of the sin of the world, the rebellion of the sin of the world, and the judgment of the sin of the world. Just like someone might suck snake venom out of someone's leg who's been bitten by a snake in order to say to them, Jesus dives into this world, takes on our full humanity, and sucks the sin and sucks the judgment out from us in order to free us from, from the devil's oppression. It means this. God knows what it's like not only to be a human, but to be a, a human in a nightmare situation. He absorbs and is on the inside of the nightmares of life, which means this. You can know, you've got to know, that God is on the inside of your experience. In fact, he's more inside than you are. He knows you better than you know yourself. He empathizes. He's into and alongside of your experience. He's there. He's... He, he's Dove into that. He knows you. He knows you totally, fully. He knows the real you, the real you. Probably you don't fully know the real you. He knows the scared you behind that wall of confidence that you've learned to project. He knows the doubting you behind that wall of victorious faith talk that you've learned how to project. He knows the guilt-ridden you behind the wall of all of your defense mechanisms that you've learned how to uh, project. He knows the ugly you behind the beautiful wall and beautiful pretense that you've learned how to project. He knows the lonely you behind the wall of shallow surface social acquaintances that you've developed. He knows the distorted you. He knows the perverted you. He knows the addicted you. you he knows the you that has, is jaded in all of your desires. And he knows the you that is selfish. He knows everything that's real about you behind the wall. And if we let him in on that, that itself brings healing and transformation into our life. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, I'll close with this. Genesis chapter 3. 
The Lord says to Adam and Eve, after they've rebelled against him and gone into hiding, they're hiding from a false picture of God, the one that the enemy gave them. And whenever we're hiding, it's because we have a false picture of God and we don't think God is safe, to be honest with. And they're hiding from the false, their false picture of God. And God says, says to them in Genesis 3, where are you? Now, God knew where they were. He's omniscient. But see, what God wants is for them to declare it, to come out. Because there's something healing about coming out. And when you come out, when you're honest, when you present your hiddenness, you give God a chance to love you in the midst of your hiddenness, in the midst of the shame, in the midst of all the junk and the ugliness and the dark stuff in your life. And as God loves you in the midst of all of that, God heals you through all of that. If you can't be okay with letting God love you completely in the midst of the manure of your life, you'll never outgrow the manure of your life in a healthy way. Because it's the unconditional love of God that comes in the midst of the mess that transforms us out of the mess. Are you hearing me here this morning? So God says, where are you? Where are you? And he wants us to know, I, he already knows, he's saying this today, he already knows every deep, dark, Thing, past and present that you've ever been involved in, but he wants you to be real with him, to restore this relationship, to bring about transformation in your life. I want to close with having us do kind of a meditation here, where we just intentionally get as raw and real with God as we possibly can. And I'm going to play this song. It's a song that I didn't know about until, I guess it was last week. My wife, uh, uh, found it and downloaded it and gave it to me and I listened to it this week and, and it just so perfectly matched the message that we're giving here. And as, as you listen to this song, it's a three, four minute song, let the Holy Spirit flesh out in your life all the hidden stuff that maybe you don't even know is there. One of the things I find with God is as I continually strive to be absolutely naked before him, as I learn things about myself I didn't know was there. He knows me better than I know myself. He reveals me to me. And says, here's something you got to work on. And usually those things like explain a lot of other things in my life. Open yourself up. Unveil yourself completely before the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you some area, some closet, some nook and cranny of your life that perhaps you've been hiding on. And then invite Jesus to come in. I, do this. Represent that area of your life, whether it's shame or woundedness, pain, fear, rebellion, whatever. Represent it somehow. And then see yourself... Put it going like this with your hands. And then see Jesus walk towards you as you're holding this out. And he just squishes it between you as he gives you a hug. And he whispers in your ear, I can take care of that. But we're going to do it from the inside of the hug. Not as the condition for the hug. From the inside of the hug. My love ahead of time is what will free you from that thing. Thank you for being honest with me. Let's keep on being honest. Let the Holy Spirit move in your life as you listen to the song. Will they take 
Just keep your eyes closed for a moment, if you would. And I, I pray you can hear the Lord say, because I didn't make this up. It's right out of the word. 
I understand. I know you. You've never been alone, not for one second. I'm on the inside of you. I know what it's like for you to be you. I know everything about you, and I love you more than you could ever imagine, just as you are. I don't love everything that you're involved in because I love you so much, and some of that stuff is damaging. But let me love you in the midst of all of that, and together we're going to outgrow this. We're going to outgrow it. My love will transform you. Let me into the deepest recesses of your life. And if there's any part of anyone's brain here this morning that says, no way, or yes, bud, or kind of, sort of, or if others, not me, we rebuke that thought in Jesus' name. It's not of God. Just put it aside and turn to the truth and hear Jesus say, I understand. I know you, and I accept you as I know you. If you're here this morning and uh, you would like to pray with somebody, we'll have some folks up here who would uh, be glad to spend some time praying with you. If you're here this morning and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus or you're not now surrendered, I have a surrendered life to Jesus, I encourage you to do that. Start a relationship with him. Uh, up here to my right and your left will be this wonderful person who would just like to give you uh, some information in a Bible to help you get started on, the, on a Christian walk. What is it to live, be part of this kingdom revolution? Father, as we leave this place, saturate us, penetrate us, transform us with your love, and make us kingdom builders in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Go out and build the kingdom. God bless you guys. Love you.